0: never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut.
1: This is an Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, the free market voice. of the U.S. Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our-
2: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman, freshly back from vacation. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for uh, uh, being with us last week while I was uh, gone. I had a good time. Took a little time to read a lot. And uh, one of the books I read was called The Conservative Heart by author C. Brooks, uh, head of the uh, American Enterprise Institute, will be joining me. In a little bit to talk about that book so you want to stay with us for that uh, something I want to, you know Congress i always feel a little better when Congress is on vacation when Congress is on vacation the general thought is uh, they're not gonna take away any more of my liberty they're not passing laws while they're on vacation And then I started doing a little research. That's the trouble with vacation. I got time to do research and the way my my brain works, I end up doing uh, research into things that probably I'd be better off not knowing. But Congress has been on vacation all this week and over 300 laws per day have been written up and put into action 300 laws per day this week while Congress is on vacation you know what I made a mistake it's not 300 laws per day it's 300 pages of laws per day not 300 laws made a mistake 300 pages Last year, over 80,000 pages of rules and regulations were published. 80,000. Now, is there any way in the world you can stay in compliance? Don't even think about it. No, you can't. And that's the purpose. You're not supposed to stay in compliance. 300 pages a day. A day. Now, part of that is made up of things like President Obama getting out his pen and writing executive orders that give government agencies like the EPA power to write those pages. Those pages, those rules and regulations that are on those pages are the same. They carry the same weight against you and me in this society as if Congress had passed a law. Same weight. So these are government bureaucrats that just write up rules. 300 pages a day. Last week, Congress wasn't even in session. Now, some of the... Rules and regulations, some of the things that uh, President Obama signed this week. Well, I'm going to tell you, he kept a couple of his promises this week. And here's one of them. If somebody wants to build a coal-powered plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them because they're going to be charged a huge sum for all that uh, greenhouse gas that's being emitted. That's right. It's going to bankrupt them. And this week second largest coal company in the United States, filed for bankruptcy. And he doesn't care. He put into place rules for the EPA to enforce that all the states are required, supposedly, to adhere to. And he's lowering carbon emissions He wants carbon emissions from power plants to be 32% below 2005 levels. And that has to be accomplished by 2030. Now, Heritage Foundation came out and estimated this is going to cost about 500,000 jobs and over $100 billion a year in lost output. Not to mention on average, on average, the American family's light bill or electrical bill will go up about a thousand dollars a year, but he doesn't care doesn't care because he believes in wind and solar and biofuels and that kind of stuff, and uh, doesn't matter that he's going to cripple different states. And power jet now in Ohio here, in Ohio, 50 percent of our electricity comes from coal. So these rules hit Ohio very, very hard. In fact, most of the red states are hit very, very hard by these rules. Many of the blue states, like Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, these rules are, are meaningless. Doesn't affect them at all. It put Alpha out of business. These rules, don't get me wrong, these rules did not put them out of business, but the trend did. Certainly assisted in putting them out of business. 300 pages a day. Now, if President Obama really cared, about carbon going into the atmosphere? Do you know where most of the carbon comes from? Most of the greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere, you know where they come from? Take a guess. Methane is a greenhouse gas, and it's 84 times stronger or more effective in heating up the atmosphere Than CO2. CO2, that's what you and I expel. You know, when you exhale, every breath you take, when you exhale, technically, according to the EPA and the Supreme Court that uh, upheld their ruling, you're polluting. You are exhaling a greenhouse gas that needs to be regulated. Methane. 84 times more effective than heating up the atmosphere than CO2. You ready? 26% of all U.S. methane emissions come from cows. Cows have a interesting digestive tract. They have a series of four stomachs. I grew up on the farm. I know this is true. And the way they digest food, by the time the food gets to the fourth stomach, it is fermenting. And cows expel methane gas, and without getting too graphic, they expel it from both ends. 26% of U.S. methane emissions, that is 84 times more effective than heating up the atmosphere than co2 comes from cows where's the number one methane producing source come from in the world number one termites termites expel approximately 20 million tons of methane into the atmosphere each year Now, the problem I have with environmental laws like this is several fold. One, it's meaningless. I don't believe that uh, the science is anywhere near settled on what causes global warming. And certainly all the research that I have seen um, doesn't lead us to believe that it's man-made. Furthermore, just recent research came out said the earth is actually cooling instead of warming up. That's why they call it climate change. They can no longer call it global warming. They have to call it climate change because global warming just isn't existing anymore. But the problem I have with that is that it's accepted as fact. Laws are put into place like this, 300 pages a day, and... It takes years and years and years to undo this through the judicial system the courts take a long long time to reverse this kind of legislation real quick another promise that uh, President Obama is keeping apparently and I I told you this uh, probably a month ago updating it now The national debt has not risen one penny since March. We're going on six months. The debt hasn't gone up a penny. Where's the money coming from? Yeah, I don't know either. Up next, we're going to talk about one more piece of executive order that was signed this week and the impact it's going to have Not only on public companies, but on your stock portfolio as well. An Economy
1: of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, you remember Dodd-Frank, Remember
2: that wonderful piece of uh piece of uh, well let's call it a piece of legislation just cuz this is a a family show Dodd-Frank back in 2010 one of the rules in the Dodd-Frank 2300 pages of legislation by the way one of the rules said that public corporations were required to calculate the median income of all their employees And create a ratio, publish a ratio of what that median income is to the CEO income. Now, this is clearly social aspect of the law has nothing to do with anything other than it gives activists, if you will, and in a minute we'll talk about legislators, power to beat up corporations. Now, the idea is, you know, several years ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago, the average CEO pay over worker pay was 30 to one. Average CEO made 30 times more than their average employee. Today, it's closer to 300 to one. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it. If a board of directors approves that contract, if a CEO can prove his worth and prove his value, he should make all that he can make. No problem with that at all. But the SEC voted three to two to mandate this disclosure beginning in 2017. And the idea is many people commented on this. Many Democrats commented on the idea is to embarrass corporations, embarrass CEOs into lowering their wage and increasing the wage of their employees. Well, when was the last time a CEO or a public corporation got embarrassed about anything? I, I, uh, I don't remember. It, it never happens. Okay? But what does happen. What does happen is it creates, it creates a database for the government to say to these corporations, ah, oh, well, you know what, your ratio isn't what we want, so we're going to tax you more. Your ratio isn't what we want, so we're going to give a government contract to a company whose ratio is what we want, even though they may not be the lowest bidder or the best producer you can see that coming and if that's coming then it's just a matter of time before it's coming for private businesses as well but dodd frank put this in place the rationale was to embarrass ceo's embarrass companies to the benefit of the employees gonna have a backlash and here's the backlash you've seen a lot this year Of companies buying back their own stock and there's a couple of things around that that you have to take in mind I always feel that buying back their own stock is a negative because it tells me they don't have anything better to do with their money there's no brick and mortar uh, they can buy no uh, R&D research and development they can invest in no new products no new machinery that kind of stuff. They got nothing else to do with their money, so they buy back stock. Now, as an investor, a company who buys back stock is a little favorable because there's fewer shares outstanding representing the value of the company. So generally, shares go up. What's going to happen with this SEC rule that you have to publish a ratio of the CEO pay to the median employee pay it's going to change the way CEOs are compensated. Many CEOs are compensated through stock, stock options, and they have bonuses based on the value of their stock going up. Now, a natural extension of this rule is companies are going to lower or freeze their CEO salary and compensate them through stock and options. So CEOs then are going to be more inclined to borrow money, especially at zero interest rates, borrow money, and buy back their own stock. That makes the value of the outstanding shares go up. Consequently, the CEOs will be compensated because their shares go up, and they'll get their bonuses because the shares go up now it will be damaging to the balance sheet potentially damaging to the company but you can bet you can bet that ceos and companies are easily going to find a workaround of this stupid rule coming out of dodd frank that has nothing to do with the consumer at all do you take a job at any company based on how much your salary is in relation to the CEO? I don't think so. I don't care. I want a job. I want to make a certain amount of money. I want to have a certain amount of opportunity. It has nothing to do with the ratio of your income to the CEO. Mark my words, it's going to backfire and uh, not have the result they want. Coming up, Arthur C. Brooks, author of the new book, The Conservative Heart, and president of the American Enterprise Institute. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one.
1: to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me
2: now is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur C. Brooks. He's uh, also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and author of The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise, and his latest book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America, available from broadside books. Arthur, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks. I really appreciate your time this morning. You know, in reading through the book, uh, one of the overriding things that I noticed was that you approach everything from a very positive standpoint rather than being against the negative. And later in the book, under the seven habits of... Uh, effective confer- uh, conservatives you focus on this concept now this is a very hard thing to do in this day and age. Uh, how do you stay positive on on uh everything that 's going on today?
0: Well, there's a lot to make you frustrated and angry. I I got it. And I talk about that in the conservative heart, too. I don't don't turn away from the hard things that are going on. But but, but here's the practical reality that we need to face. Uh, Whenever the conservative movement is a movement of anger, Mm -hmm. it's a movement that doesn't win presidential elections. But when the conservative movement is one of aspiration, it it starts to win because it expands the coalition. It becomes a movement of ideas and a movement of possibilities. And right now, we're angry because so many people are being left behind. So we have to be able to be optimistic about what the future can hold. So, sure, let's recognize openly the things that are going wrong, but let's be the optimists that Americans really want. I mean, here's the key thing for our listeners to take away. Millions and millions of Americans are begging for an excuse to follow us politically, but they're not going to do it when the Republican Party is the party of anger. Mm-hmm. They'll only do it when the Republican Party is the party of aspiration.
2: You know, and that sounds very Reagan-esque. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way President Reagan was. He focused on the positive rather than being against the the negative. Also, I got to tell you, uh, right out of the gate, I mean, I make it a point to read books of of people I have on the show. You took the time to to write it. I'll take the time to read it. And one of the things that stuck with me, and and I have said it probably 10 times in the last week, is in the pursuit of happiness. And you spend quite a bit of time talking about happiness You talk about happiness versus unhappiness, but more importantly, satisfaction versus dissatisfaction. So people can be happy, but dissatisfied. And that really hit home for me. How do you, I mean, expand a little bit on the thought process there for us.
0: Well, the American character is a very entrepreneurial character, and the reason is because this is a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. The most entrepreneurial thing that you can do is pick up stakes and go someplace where you don't know anybody, and it's maybe a different religion or a different race or a different language, and and start new. That's a really entrepreneurial thing to do. So what you find is that Americans tend to be – Pretty happy, but pretty dissatisfied. They want more. They're always looking to the new horizons. That's one of the reasons that we're such a successful country. There are other countries, by the way, where people are satisfied but unhappy. I lived for a long time in Spain, and I talk about that in the conservative heart. Mm -hmm. And the contrast between Spain and the United States is that while Americans are happy but not satisfied, the Spaniards are satisfied with their lot, but they're unhappy about their lives. (laughs) You know what? I'll tell you which one I'll take. I'll take America all day long. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's just one of those things because my wife and I have had several discussions over the years that, you know, we're just not happy. We're just not happy. And then I read this and you know what? I'm just not satisfied. I'm happy. i just it, satisfied.
0: It just means you're not there yet. And right. In the conservative heart, I mean, there's a lot about policy and a lot about politics in it, but there's a lot about happiness, too, as you just said. And, and when, when readers look at the book, they're going to find even the four secrets to the happiest life. I've done years and years of work on this as a, as a scholar I, when I was teaching as an economist at the university. I was My main area of research was human happiness, and, and I, I share the secrets from hundreds of articles and books about the happiest people. And and basically, it's a happiness portfolio, and I give mm-hmm. the four secrets to how to lead the happiest life and how conservatives should be sharing that with everybody and making it part of our movement.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the points I I uh, highlighted in the book was that happiness portfolio is faith, family, community, and meaningful work. Now you, that's right. You know, you that's spend ex- a lot of time on on the war on poverty and, and uh, talk a lot about the Doe Fund in New York, which I had never— Uh, been aware of before, but meaningful work is very, very critical to this overall picture, is it not?
0: Absolutely. Work really is the secret to what we do. I mean, very serious Christians uh, understand this with a careful reading of the Bible, by the way, and I know that not everybody listening to us is a Christian or or is even religious, Mm -hmm. but it's worth pointing out that that work in the Bible has has this, this especially strong role where God told Adam to tend the garden before the fall. It was this whole idea that that being a creative person, being a fulfilled person comes with meaningful work, and that's what we have to fight for for everybody. So, you're right, the book is chock full of stories about people uh, putting their lives together, and you know the poorest people. I talk to people who have been in prison for more than two decades, and who are homeless, and and are working for the first time, And, and what you find is that they believe in conservative values, but they don't even know it. They don't even know that those are conservative values, and too often and we as conservatives don't know that this is how we're supposed to be talking. But, but mark my words, if we don't start talking about being pro-people and pro-poor and pro-compassion, not with liberal values, with our own conservative values of faith, family, community, and work, if we don't do that, we're not going to win.
2: Right, right. You know, I grew up with a, an entrepreneur father who had uh, many companies and, and uh, very well off. But he instilled in me over the years that success and money – have nothing in common, and that any honest work is noble work. You talk a lot about uh, the fact that many times in this society we we look down our noses or some people look down their noses at certain jobs, but there really is no dead-end jobs, is there?
0: Yeah, that's right. The conservative heart recognizes that there's equal moral worth in all honest work, and all honest work is good. That doesn't mean that you and I are going to like all jobs equally, because you have to match your skills with your passions. That's why we need labor markets that are relatively free so that people can move around. They can even move between regions of the country. But a socially democratic state, a great big government, just makes that too hard, quite frankly. And an education system that works for the benefit of teachers, unions, and bureaucrats as opposed to kids, puts all kinds of barriers up to the poor. So what we need to be talking about is sanctifying every single job to talk about everybody who works hard as having equal moral worth and for conservatives to be warriors so that everybody can work.
2: We're talking with Arthur Brooks. He's the president of the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, The Conservative Heart, How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Now, in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about The war on poverty, and certainly since President Johnson, maybe even all the way back to FDR, the government has been promoting spending to assist the poor, and we've spent trillions of dollars on our poverty, and the situation in the the, the, in the country has hardly changed. Why is why is this the case?
0: well we had the wrong model so that when president johnson declared the, the great society uh, it was on May twenty second uh... nineteen sixty four why is it an important day that was one day after i was born <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm literally a child of the great society and it was beautiful the language was soaring with the rhetoric about people living lives of meaning and, and prosperity not just being about money it was I, I agree with every word of it but then they tried to execute it with simply trillions and trillions of dollars. Of course that fails. The government is not about love and compassion. The government is about law and justice. Humans, people are about about love and compassion. We need to use good government programs in conjunction with community activity and our own consciences to lift people up. And instead, we we started looking at every poor person as a as a um, as a liability to manage. One of the things I talk about in a conservative heart is that if we want to turn this around, we want to fix poverty in this country. We have to look at every single person as an asset to develop. And that's a hugely different mindset. So I talk to people. I talk to people who are homeless in New York. And one guy, he just got out of prison after 22 years. And he, and he got a job through this visionary program in New York City. It was a menial job with a, with a pest eradication organization. And it was the kind of job that President, Vice President Biden would say is a dead end job, right. and you know I asked him, "Are you happy?" It's the first job he ever had, first job, real job he ever had. He just got into his first apartment. He's making friends for the first time outside prison. And he said, "Am I happy?" He shows me an email from his boss. It says, "Emergency bed bug job. He's 65th Street. I need you now." I said, "So what?" He said, "Look at this again." He says in an email, I need you now. It's the first time anybody in my life has ever said that. That's the conservative heart. If we can remember that everybody needs and deserves to be needed for their earned success and their honest work, then we're going to be the party of aspiration, and we're going to win.
2: You know, as in talking about this subject, as – as important the, uh, the concept of happiness and satisfaction and dissatisfaction hit me, one of the other things that really hit me hard was the difference between complicated and complex when you're talking about the war on poverty. And yeah. I've, I've related that several times in the last week or so also. Give us the difference between that.
0: Well, I talk about that a little bit. I mean, when it, w- one of the reasons that the war on poverty from the left failed is that it looked at human society as if it were a, a jet engine, a really complicated problem. If you just right. get all the levers right with government and, and torch enough money in the process, you're gonna, it's going to work like a machine. It's going to work you know, like a computer, basically. Well, that's not how these things are. It's so a mathematician. T- I've explained this in the book, and this is not a, you know, a long-haired book about math, but, <laughs> but it's important to understand the distinction that, that mathematicians know that complicated problems, like a jet engine, are different than complex problems, like winning a war complex problems. you know the solution for the war on poverty it's poor people aren't poor anymore but you can't find the solution with enough government money you can't find the solution with supercomputers you find it by getting the best practices that actually treat people in with this with with a spirit of compassion and humanity like our brothers and sisters and you hold them to the same standards and ask them to work That's basically what you do and then you make progress but it's not complicated it's complex
2: you know in the in the last several years I've noticed a, a change uh, in in language out there we went from global warming to climate change uh, the war on poverty is now income equality why, why the the change in somatics from the the government on on these issues
0: well the war on poverty. Failed uh, when it was declared in 1964. 15% of Americans were living below the poverty level. After 15 trillion dollars, 14.7 percent of the population is living uh, below the poverty line, which is to say it failed, and any CEO for that performance would be fired 500 times over. So they have to basically rebrand it. It's kind of like like an airline that has a terrible accident and then rebrands. It just changes the whole name so that people don't associate it with a terrible accident. The war on poverty is a train wreck, so change the name of the railroad is what they're talking about. Unfortunately for the left, I talked about this in the conservative heart, so conservatives, when they read the book, they're going to get clued in on the right strategy on this, the left is running into a really stupid idea. Americans don't care about income equality. They don't. They care about opportunity equality. It's a, it's a hobby horse limousine liberal thing to worry about income inequality per se. It's a 2%, literally a 2% issue. Now, that's why Bernie Sanders is talking about it, because elites on the Upper West Side of Manhattan think it's important. That's why they, they read uh, Thomas Piketty's book. Right, right. That's why all the elites do that because it's got all the long-haired college professors care about it but there are democrats listening to you and me right now and they share our values and they want a better way for more opportunity for the poor which is what we believe in jointly morally this is the american idea and just saying let's equalize up income more that's a loser for the democrats
2: We've been speaking with Arthur C Brooks. He's the president of the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book The Conservative Heart: How to Build a Fairer, Happier, and More Prosperous America. Arthur, I really appreciate your time this morning. I did read the book. It's a great book. We're going to put it on our website and uh you do great work at uh, AEI. We've we've tapped the shoulder of a lot of your people over there and they've been been terrific and and very helpful for us. Um appreciate all the work you do and And uh, I hope we can uh, chat with you again soon.
0: I'd love it. I'd love it. Thanks very much for your time. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. You obviously read it really carefully, and I hope it's helpful to everybody who reads it. So stay with it, and we'll be in the
2: fight together. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. Coming up next, we're going to talk about your friends on Facebook determining your creditworthiness. We got to look at that. An Economy
1: of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. That was Arthur C. Brooks, president
2: of the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, The Conservative Heart. If you'd like to hear the rest of my interview with uh, Arthur, go to our website, an economyofone.com, or our Facebook page. In Economy One, you can hear the entire interview with Arthur Brooks. A little bit lighter note. I came across this um, in my readings. Uh, Facebook, okay, and that Facebook is kind of a uh, uh, a software, uh, a service, a company. I don't know quite how they make money, but apparently they do. But Facebook got a patent, a patent from the United States government that would allow lenders to determine your creditworthiness by looking at your friends on your Facebook page. Now think about this for a second. Your friends that friend you on your Facebook page, their creditworthiness will affect your creditworthiness. Now what what's... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm almost dumbfounded about that. Now, you you got two ways to go. You either want to uh, add some friends that have really good credit, or you want to get rid of some friends that have really bad credit. Now, I don't know how they came up with this. I'm su- sure some... Some math geek or something uh, started looking at things and analyzing people's friends and developed an algorithm that said, if all your friends are deadbeats, you're likely to be a deadbeat. And if all your friends have great credit, you're likely to have great credit. But a patent on this information, and I'm not even sure that would be legal for an institution to take into consideration, I mean, you can't really control who likes your page, who's your friend on your page. I mean, you can defriend people or unfriend them, I guess, is the, the term. But uh, when an individual applies for a loan, the, the lender will examine the credit rating of members of the individual's social networks. If the average credit rating of these members is at least a minimum credit score, the lender continues the process alone. Otherwise, the loan application could be rejected. Now, the impact of that is tremendous because I don't know the credit rating of some of my friends. Do you? Do you know, friends and family, what their Credit ratings are. I don't. And quite honestly, I don't want to know. I know what mine is. And that's all I'm concerned about. But if I, my credit worthiness is going to be partially influenced by the credit worthiness of friends and family. um, I think I got a problem with that. I think I got a big problem with that. Now. They're quoted as saying, despite all the concerns, it's possible that the new patent won't even see the light of day. Just because a patent is granted doesn't mean a company has the intention to actually use it. Right, right. I, I, that, that makes me feel so much better, Not, doesn't it, you? I mean, when you see all the mistakes, currently about 50% of the information on some of these credit sites is inaccurate. Income is inaccurate. Debts are inaccurate. Um, the data just isn't isn't precise. So it's interesting to see what people are trying to come up with. The fact that the United States government issued a patent on that is fascinating to me. I I just, uh, I find that very, very interesting. What else are they going to look for in determining your credit worthiness? Won't be long before they'll look at your health records. Mark my words, they will determine whether you are credit worthy, whether you're likely to pay the loan back based on your health. You know they've got all that information. They've got all of that up the yazoo. This is just one more piece of them controlling every aspect of your life. I want you to have a great day. I want you to be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time.
1: This is our country.
2: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.